Coming up this hour, you've no doubt heard about President Donald Trump and COVID. We're also joined by Pastor Val Fisk. And then the end of the hour, we're talking about cancel culture. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone welcome to the common good i would say happy friday but i don't i don't know is that presumptuous of me to say it's happy maybe it isn't happy for everybody it is just friday it's friday and i know that you're a big happy friday get friday guy friday guy friday guy yeah sure i'll be that (laughs) easy easy for me to say but uh yeah either way welcome i'll tell you what weird holidays it is a little bit later in the show but real briefly you can find us on facebook the common good radio show we not only post articles there uh, but you can also send us a message if you want to get in contact with us. We're podcasted. So wherever it is you get podcast, you can subscribe, rate, and review. That helps us out a ton. And we're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. Any of that, any interaction, any sharing or texting or tweeting helps us out a bunch. And we're really grateful for all of you who have already done that. I There's just no way around it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't end the show or end the show, begin the show with mm-hmm. any other news than the news that everyone is talking about that uh, President Donald Trump and his wife have tested positive for COVID-19. And I have a number of different articles here in our rundown, Brian. So some have to do with the markets. Some have to do with what should the response from the Christian be? What does it mean for the rest of us? Um, I'm going to let you choose which of the uh, included links here you want to kind of start off with as we kind of work our way through this, this news. Yeah, I think the important one is the one you put here from NPR because, uh, you know, it was really odd, like you said, to wake up uh, and, and you know, eventually turn on the Today Show or something and immediately see this breaking news that President Trump and the First Lady had actually tested positive. And uh, last night you heard that, you know, somebody in his inner circle had tested positive and you're like, ah, well, you know, hopefully everyone's OK. Uh, and kind of the domino effect of what is now possible it was really wild. I don't know. It was it was startling to see. And then the reason I think this NPR one is important is because it goes into uh, what a positive coronavirus di- diagnosis can mean for him at yeah. his age. And uh, his, you know, the, the f- common phrase is comorbidities or underlying factors of being, you know, having some obesity issues, but mostly age to know that People between the ages of 65 and 74, it says here, are five times more likely than younger adults to be hospitalized and 90 times more likely to die. Uh, That eight out of the 10 COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. have been from older people. Uh, And so, uh, like you said, people want to jump to what does it mean for the country or the politics and stuff. And and what struck me this morning was like, man, this this pandemic, like it, it knows no. Uh, it knows no, you know, political ties or barriers. It's it's kind of still out there. And uh, I do appreciate the people being like, you know, we need to first and foremost pray for him because uh, he is in a risk factor. And and so that was what struck me. It was just a weird, unsettling feeling even just to see the headline this morning that President Trump had uh, tested positive. And so this article, I think, is the important first one. Like he's in a bad demographic for this. And so I think lifting him up in prayer and hopefully the doctor staying very closely tied to him and keeping a close eye, uh, we'll be praying that he gets through this for sure. Well, the other things that I I know that a lot of people have been asking about, apart from, you know, just general, normal, run-of-the-mill snark on Twitter and Facebook, (laughs) is uh, debates. Will debates now be via Zoom? Which I I think is... Borderline ironic because how many people were tweeting? Gosh, if Sullivan only had a mute button like a like a preschool <laughs> teacher on Zoom, I'm like, well, that one yeah. might actually be on Zoom. The other thing 
that, and again, I'm not anywhere near smart enough to know how any of this works, but I think, I think technically if, if either the nominees like find themselves too sick to serve, the party gets to decide who replaces them on the ticket. But but yeah, but the problem is I think I'm right here. I haven't like 2 million Americans already voted. It's a great point. Yeah, I would think so. I hadn't even thought of that. That's interesting. I so just what, assumed it would be the vice president. <laughs> so, yeah, and I, like I'm saying, if if either of them are sick, so like if you know yeah, the case you. that 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 Biden gets sick, I I do I think that's accurate. Somebody, a political scientist, is listening right now. I'm like, that's so false, inaccurate. <laughs> but I think I think that's true though, and I think um, yeah. there's all, I mean, obviously there are a whole lot of other elements to this a lot of people have been posting various different videos of you know previous rallies i think those yeah. are probably done as we know it right like do we do we For see sure. republican rallies the way that we have or do those in your like do you predict those just to go away entirely now or what like what do you think is going to happen there so not just predict i believe uh it came out today i think from his chief of staff uh, that they're going to go virtual, you know, in air quotes here for the time being, but there's not that much time before the election. And so uh, they will go away knowing President Trump. He's going to get back at this quickly, assuming good health, assuming he gets beyond this. But uh, yeah, and and it's also, you know, we, we can't ignore the fact, and you just touched on it about uh, about the rallies. But more than that, the, all the people who are debating you know, masks, no masks, social distancing. They're not perfect things, but let's just be honest, the president and in his inner circle, especially in recent weeks, have really kind of uh, skewed wearing masks and doing any kind of thing like that. And now there appears to be an outbreak in his inner circle. There was a, I was just watching this before we came on, uh, from the Rose Garden the other day that, that um, where they, he introduced Amy Coney Barrett, uh, the, the president of Notre Dame, university was there without a mask. He just tested positive today uh, or announced that he tested positive. And so these sorts of choices are not just political choices. They do matter. And uh, again, hopefully this doesn't go crazy and hopefully it doesn't, you know, throw some upheaval into our government, but it it does need to remind us that this pandemic, this virus is still out there and we still need to be smart and not just go, I'm tired of wearing a mask or only the liberals wear masks or something like that. And it's not just masks, social distancing and other things, but uh, we still need to, I guess what I'm trying to say is we need to continue or at least begin to treat the virus uh, with the severity that we did at other times. And maybe for some people who really loved President Trump, uh, this will also be a wake up call. So hopefully, but obviously first and foremost, uh, our thoughts are with his health and hopefully, uh, Hopefully it remains mild. The report today was mild symptoms. Who knows what that means? Uh, But hopefully they remain mild. He gets over it. Uh, Joe Biden's campaign already came out and said that he and his wife tested negative this morning. So hopefully that remains the case. Hmm. And uh, yeah, man, but this is certainly one for the history books. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've used the word unprecedented more this year than I have maybe ever. Uh, Then you add to that, you have other people saying, Maybe maybe he's faking the whole thing because I heard that. he yeah. d- doesn't think he did well in the debates, and so now he's trying to you know gain some level of sympathy. I was like, oh, I didn't even didn't even think about that possibility. I did find it odd that there were people writing about how this affects the markets as early as like two a.m. yesterday right. or this morning, I guess technically. And I thought, gosh, I should know that, but my goodness, something like this, like a single tweet, could have such global effects on the market that quickly is 
pretty fascinating slash terrifying. Right. Like I get, and again, people who are economists or, you know, day traders, they're like, yeah, that's how, that's how this has always worked. But I just, <laughs> just seeing it like that, like, wow, that he just tweeted this. And 30 minutes later, someone's written an article like, yep, here are the, here are the future predictions of how it's going to rattle the markets globally. You're like, oh my goodness. So you have that in the mix. You have people wondering if it's legit or not. You have people, I mean, you think about between now and election, if he's got a quarantine for two weeks, days, right? Yeah. Uh, that's about half the distance between here and the election. Right. Like that's a it's a pretty, man, pretty wild. I'll probably catch some heat for this, too. I, I did tweet a couple hours ago, something like, there are a few things less Christian than celebrating the illness of someone else. And, <laughs> and then people, of course, have commented like other things that uh, they've seen Trump say or do. And they're like, yeah, I would add this to the list. I'm like, yep. I agree with that too. I'm just yep. saying to outright celebrate uh, that someone else is sick to me. Yeah, maybe that's a maybe that's a theological battle royale we should have another time because to me, I, you know, we've 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 been pretty critical of both sides, I think, on this show. Right. But uh, yeah, sometimes sometimes a single tweet can get you in a little bit of trouble, and uh, right. I guess that's the nature of the platform. Either way, obviously, we would love to know what you guys think. This is all posted up on the Facebook page. The Common Good Radio Show coming up next for two segments. Pastor Val Fisk is going to talk about uh, her role both as a minister, but also the future of millennial ministry and what are some ways the church can come alongside this very nomadic, transient generation. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And personally, I am ecstatic to have, for two segments, my friend, Pastor Val Fisk. Welcome to the show, friend. Hello. I'm so glad to be with you. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be so much fun. Before we kind of dive into what we want to talk about, would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to our Common Good audience? Absolutely. Well, um, I feel like the Common Good audience should first know that I've known Ian for a lot of years now. Mm -hmm. We've been friends Mm -hmm. for a long time. We went to college together, and so... Folks can reach out to me for embarrassing stories and photos. Uh, I am the Associate Minister for Students at University Baptist Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, We are located right across the street from the University of Virginia grounds. And so I am engaged in the work of youth ministry and college ministry for this congregation. Um, I have a degree from George Truett Theological Seminary in Waco, Texas, and an undergraduate BA from Judson University in Elgin, Illinois. Uh, I've spent over a decade doing youth ministry, college ministry, young adult ministry, um, just kind of all across the spectrum, figuring out how to do life with young people and how to help them kind of engage in the church and um, working through what that looks like. So a lot of that has taken me into the work of specifically uh, researching and studying generational differences as they are associated with the church as well. Hmm. Well, Val, we'll probably add a segment here for those stories later because we would all like to hear them uh, about Ian. But, uh, curious, when you talk about generations and particularly millennials and some of the younger generations that, that you know so mm-hmm. well, how, how has COVID-19 uh, affected specifically those younger generations? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest shifts is that so many millennials are working multiple jobs to make ends meet. Hmm. Um, For some background reference, 
Millennials are the second largest generation in the history of the United States. Um, Millennials, of which I am one, I'm like right in the middle of this millennial generation. Um, We are just slightly smaller than the baby boomer generation. But uh, far more millennials continue to live with a parent or to live with roommates for a longer period of life than any generation previous. Far more millennials are working multiple jobs to maintain the quality of life that their parents would have and are accustomed to with one job. And so there are a lot of millennials who are working a full-time nine to five and then doing other things on top of it, like waiting tables or um, doing Uber or food delivery or like all these other, you know, do it in your own car app kind of things. Um, In the case of COVID-19, millennials lost those side hustles. We've lost those second jobs and many lost their primary means of income as well, um, which means losing healthcare, losing possibly housing, uh, having to make big changes. And so I have noticed this year far more of my friends and people my age having to increasingly move to find a new job. Um, It's just been a, it's a nomadic culture among millennials anyway. Um, In general, research is showing that millennials spend less than two years in any given home that they live in. But I really foresee that our already nomadic group of millennials in the United States are going to be even more nomadic after this year because of the fact that so many people have lost jobs and are going to be moving to try to find a new one. Right, right. That's fascinating for a couple of reasons. We did a, a story last week about how many young millennials are moving back in with their parents and some of the mm-hmm. interesting family dynamics that that's creating. And I was going to ask you, I'm glad you touched on it because it seems like a lot of millennials already have a more kind of intrinsic pull towards the nomadic anyway. And if yeah. if their employment is requiring it, that's probably exacerbating or at least accelerating mm-hmm. some of the nomadic nature. And, and all three of us now in this conversation are pastors. We really care about the big C church, the local church. And one of the things that mm-hmm. I've, I mean, probably since I was 20, I've heard church leaders kind of scratch their heads around like, how do we engage young people? That's like, all, that's an evergreen question, mm-hmm. right? And if what you're saying is, yeah, they're leaving every 18 months to two years to some degree, yeah. how, how do you like minister well to a demographic that is like that transient? Absolutely. That's a huge part of the question is as churches, you know, small C churches, individual congregations, we have to make onboarding people into the culture of our church happen faster. We have to make it easier for people who are moving frequently, moving into our areas to get plugged in really quickly with like small groups or Bible studies or whatever it is that we're doing. Um, But we also then have to find ways to help people who are moving away feel like they are being sent off well and not just kind of abandoned. Right. I'm curious on the, on the side of the person who's moving so much, I didn't realize that statistic of how transient, Mm -hmm. uh, what does that do for that generation when it comes to building community, making relationships, carrying on friendships? Uh, what, what is the effect of moving so often? Yeah. So myself personally, I have had, I had to total this up and do it when I was moving. So 
I just moved to my current location in Charlottesville six weeks ago. And that's mm. why this topic is so heavy on my heart right now mm. is because I'm living in the middle of it. Right. Um, I have had 10 different home addresses in the last 10 years. Wow. And it is not that I have actually moved every single year, but there have been some places where it's like, oh, well, I lived in this spot for four months with these roommates. And I lived in this spot for six months with this person. And then when I was in Texas for seminary, I lived in one apartment for two years, but you know, it kind of all balanced out. So 10, 10 addresses in 10 years. And those were in uh, now four different states. Wow. And so that's hard and heavy. And each transition is different. When I left Illinois uh, in 2015 to go to seminary, I had a built-in community because I was going to school and I was living in a residential program surrounded by other students. Right. When I moved to Tennessee at the very beginning of 2019, it was very different. And I was very, very lonely for the first several months until I found someone who started introducing me to his group of friends and I started becoming their friends and we, you know, bonded with one another. And I, I suddenly had this community of people. Um, and now my transition to living in Virginia has been very different again, because the congregation here has been much more intentional because of COVID to make sure that I feel cared for and welcomed and taken care of in ways that may not have happened if I was moving into town at a different time. Right. I think overall, like the, the question of generationally, what does that do? It just makes us lonelier people in general. We're not good at managing to talk about the lone loneliness that we feel and I think part of that is because we know everybody feels this way. Everyone's moving frequently. Everyone is kind of going through the same things. And so why should I put my feelings, my loneliness mm. upon another person? That's really good. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Pastor Val Fisk. And she's going to be joining us for one more segment as we talk about millennials and sort of the nomadic transient nature of millennials and how COVID continues to affect that and how we as the church can intentionally come alongside them in this season. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And we're joined for a second segment by Pastor Val Fisk, who's been talking about the nature of really millennials, which I think a lot of people forget that based on which metric you use, millennials are almost 40. So they're not, you know, <laughs> necessarily the junior hires with, you know, skateboards and colored hair. But uh, I think a lot of times people really still struggle to engage well. I remember being overseas years ago and we were doing a ministry event for a bunch of military students and they were talking about what's called a, a PCS, a permanent change of station, and how because in their own experience, people were just moving all the time. I had high schoolers telling me, I just intentionally don't make real friendships. Like I, I've learned to just sort of be really friendly, but not actually go very deep. And part of mm -hmm. what part of what Pastor Val has been talking to us about is, yeah, more than maybe any previous generation, they're transient, they've lost their side hustles, they're moving around a lot. And part of what I would love to ask you about, Val, is what are some like really tangible ways that the church can serve or minister to or come alongside millennials that are in already a pretty strange place. And then you add COVID on top of that. And that's just sort of throws it all into a tizzy. Do you have any practical 
suggestions or handles to help us with this? I do. I, um, I think that one of the best things that my congregation here in Charlottesville did for me as I was arriving, uh, was that they decided to help engage me in the community and help me find places that I would fall in love with for like takeout and coffee and, um, like just different local businesses that they wanted me to know about. And of course, I'm at a Baptist church. So these are people who are used to making casseroles and showing up to fill your fridge. And, you know, typically when they call a new pastor, the first Sunday the pastor is there would, you know, they'd have a big reception afterwards and everyone would get to meet the pastor and, you know, shake hands and hug on each other and they would give tangible gifts. Uh, But in COVID-19, of course, we can't do that. Right. And so instead, they showered me with massive piles of gift cards to all of these mm-hmm. local places that I needed to know. So I have been here in Charlottesville for six weeks, and I have yet to have to actually pay for a cup of coffee wow. because they gave me so many really wonderful, really generous gifts to these coffee shops that are all over town. And yeah, there were gift cards to Target and Kroger and like these other stores that I can, you know, there was notes about, hey, we know that, you know, all kinds of random things come when you're moving. Like we hope this relieves some of that stress for you. So as a minister moving into a new town, my people knew I was going to need that and they provided that for me. So then I I think our transition point is to focus at you. Okay, how do we do that for millennials who are on the move, who maybe are doing this as a single adult who might not know anyone in a town that they're moving to for a new job? How do we as a church come alongside of those people and bless them in similar ways? And I think Mm. there's two ways to do that. One is as a church who is sending people on their way to a new place, we have to be willing to provide some of that. So if I'm leaving and this, some of this did happen as I was leaving Tennessee to come here to Virginia, the congregation I was leaving had this like drive through goodbye celebration. And some folks brought gift cards and notes and you know pictures and really nice things for me there to send me off. And I think that's one way that we engage. And then I think, for church members, church deacons, folks who are engaged in a local congregation who see others coming in and joining their staff at whatever job they're in, that then is an opportunity to turn to your church and say, hey, we've just hired this new young person who's moving from out of state. Can we, you know, can we do something to gift them a welcome into our city, into our community. And what a beautiful way for someone to arrive at a new job and in a new town to have, you know, gifts from people they don't even know yet showing up Mm -hmm. on their desk. That's awesome. I'm curious, Val, as you deal with younger generations specifically, uh, what role, what are the political discussions, not the specific policy or this person, or that person, but is there a high sense of discouragement? Is there a high sense of engagement with all that's going on? What are kind of those conversations that you hear going on right now? Oh my gosh. Uh, that's, <laughs> you know, okay. So there's, I think two different ways 
that I have to answer that. One would be current college students and people who are like under the age of 25 that are part of Gen Z are just much more hopeful than millennials. Hmm. Millennials who are, you know, closer to the 30 to 40 range in age right now tend to be much more cynical and have a lot less hope than these really young kids who are just engaged. You know, I have high schoolers in my youth group who are out walking streets, knocking on doors for local political candidates. Um, Local college students who are just full of drive and vigor and desire to see change happen. And so I think there's a lot of hopelessness, but the youngest voters in our country right now, I think are really hopeful and really engaged. And I think one of the ways I'm also seeing that is, you know, personally, I have been rewatching the West Wing for the last (laughs) several weeks because it just like is a very nostalgic thing for me and it gives me so much hope. But like my youngest brother, who is 19, he's obsessed with this show Hmm. and he loves it. And it's like this whole new generation of kids have been introduced to politics through the lens of binge watching this show that has created this innate desire for being politically active for the things they believe in. Hmm. And for young people who are engaged in the church, much more than when I was 18, 19 years old. For the people who are 18 to 20 years old right now, everything that they are doing politically is connected to their faith if their Hmm. faith is yeah, if faith is a part of their life, right. that's why they're doing it. Right. They right. don't see a disconnect between. One of the things that I noticed when I started this church here in Naperville was when I engaged with young adults and I asked them, what are you looking for? Like, what's your biggest need? I was pretty overwhelmed that the vast majority of them said friends. Like, they yeah. would just say, I don't know how to make friends anymore. In high school, you have clubs and cliques and teams and hobbies and then same thing in college. And then you become a 20-something and you're like, I showed up at this church and I see all these other people that are my same age, but how do you just walk up and ask someone to be friends? Yeah. It can be incredibly awkward. So you've talked a little bit about what the church can do, like with just the minute or so that we have left for anyone who's listening right now, who actually does find themselves in that place. They're a young adult and they're feeling extra alone, extra isolated. Like how do, how do I even take a first step towards building community? What, what would you say to that person? Um, One option is that, there are now actually like dating apps for friendship out there that you can download an app and like find a friend. And so that's a really great option, I Mm -hmm. think, to know like, hey, I'm looking for friendship and they're looking for friendship. We're both lonely. We're on the same page. Um, People who are right in front of your face, I would say, like, we just have to get brave. We have to be okay with inviting one another into our homes for an unstructured, like, hey, let's just hang out. Let's just make dinner together. Hey, do you want to come over to my place? And that's really scary sometimes to invite someone into your space. Yeah. It opens up vulnerability, but that's the only way to build a relationship. Yeah, that's so good, man. I'm so grateful for you taking the time. If you're just joining us, that has been Pastor Val Fisk, the Associate Minister for Students at University Baptist Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. You can also follow her on Twitter at ValFisk08. Highly recommend that you do. Val, just anecdotally, it's been wonderful to hear your voice again. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, I'm so glad that you asked me to. It's been really great to spend this time with you. The feeling is most certainly mutual. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Happy World Smile Day, by the way, Brian. I like that one. That's good. That needs to be on a Friday. <laughs> uh, it'd be weird if you were like, nope, I hate that one. No. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was with you for it. Strawberry Cream Pie Day, but no. Brian Fromm, anti-smiles. That's why Brian likes masks so much. Is it covers everyone's yep. smile? That's just uh, <laughs> yes. I don't have to see those smiles oh, anymore. Oh, <laughs> gross! Yeah. Anyway, I'll I'll be sharing more throughout the show. I don't know if anyone cares about them half as much as we do, but I I think it's I think it's a Our funny. Are on the uh, show? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's true. It's a topic. I'm I'm trying to think of topics we've talked about more than cancel culture. There's not mm-hmm. a lot. It's something that's come up a lot because we've seen it in politics and in entertainment. And in religion, it it really um, it's an equal opportunity term, cancel culture. But I found this article from churchleaders.com by Jojo Agat. Agat? Agat? What do you think? I think it's Agat. Jojo Agat. And the headline caught my attention. Why cancel culture is not enough. What's going on here? Yeah, the beginning of the article begins by, talk, again, explaining what cancel culture is. But then it goes on to say, the problem with cancel culture is that if you're caught with your pants down, he wrote parenthetically, hopefully, hopefully figuratively, uh, you don't get to explain why. You're canceled right away. Twitter will explode. You land on the top trend and your career or social life is practically over. For a few days or weeks, social media will vilify you as if you're the vilest person on the planet. Uh, and then goes on to talk about uh, that famous story of Justine Sacco, who made a joke before getting on a plane. And by the uh-huh. time she got off the plane had already been fired and it had gone kind of viral. Uh, it says today, we're also seeing the local horrors of cancel culture and the internet outrage in our society in the past six months of lockdowns. Oh, he's from the Philippines says Philippine social media. People have canceled or tried to cancel companies, celebrities and influencers. The reasons are valid are, are varied. I'm sorry. Real issues of injustice, political affiliations, privilege, Something as minor as an improper unboxing of a brand new uh, PSP. Uh, And so it continues to go on this and says, why is cancel culture so wildly satisfying? Because we finally realize that we can now strike back at those who offend us from behind our avatars. And while this can be beneficial to a certain extent, we need to admit that the social and relational toll of cancel culture is far more devastating than we care to admit. And then he's going to give us a list, seven reasons why I I would admonish Christians not to join in the fray of cancel culture. That's an interesting way of framing it, saying one reason cancel culture has really taken off. And he acknowledges Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, others where it's a positive thing. But he says, by and large, uh, one reason that cancel culture is taken off because it gives us a feeling of power. Like that person makes me angry. I now, because of social media, can do something about it. Uh, but he's going to say, here's the reasons why Christians, specifically the Christ follower, uh, needs to kind of reject cancel culture as kind of a a general paradigm. Uh, again, there's there's places where it's appropriate, but we're as in general where we as Christians need to reject. So well, that's, I'm, what, that's what I was going to say, because I think that I think it's the whole point that the people who are in powerless situations are then given power. I think that's the whole story of Harvey Weinstein is that people that's felt right. so powerless to do anything about this secret and plain sight that something like, you know, the Me Too movement eventually yep. landed him in jail. Not only it wasn't just the Me Too movement, but that was a major it player. Started it. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I, I don't know that the. um the inverting systems of power is necessarily 
always a bad thing, to be honest. I agree. I agree. And that's where it becomes weird, right? This discussion about cancel culture, because as we said, there are certainly times where it's needed. Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, other things that we've talked about before. Uh, But who gets to decide that, right? Like everyone might say, no, this one's worthy of it. This one's worthy of it. And so it does become, it's not so black and white. Let's put it that way. And, uh, but yeah, let's look at his list and you decide, you tell me what you think about this. Let me do the first one. Seven reasons. He says why I'd admonish Christians not to join the fray of cancel culture. He says cancel culture is so fast and short lived. The issue dies with the next news cycle. So, uh, that's an interesting one to start with. What do you think of that one? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, it's entirely true to be honest. Again, mm-hmm. in the case of me too, it, it didn't die with the next news cycle. And I wonder if this would be. Like in general, to simply say like, well, because it's too short lived, like it shouldn't be engaged with at all. Like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe what needs to happen is it should live on longer. Not, mm-hmm. yeah, don't bother engaging because it's it's so short lived. That'll be, I'll probably sort of partly agree with a lot of these. Number two says, uh, people settle with shaming as if it solves the problem. Once the offender is shamed, we stop. But shaming is not the end goal. Justice is. That's a pretty good one. That's a good one. Uh. I would say cancel culture probably starts by shining the light on it, like you said, the Harvey Weinstein example. Uh, but it then needs to go further into justice. Okay, number three, it fosters mob mentality. So many people simply join the bandwagon without taking the time to understand the issue at hand. They fire shots from their Facebook walls and Twitter streams before they ask what's going on. Some don't even bother knowing what really happened. So this idea of a mob mentality, getting on the right side here uh, without really knowing what's going on. Yeah, again... I I I don't know. I could quite say that's not a reason. That's not a reason to cast the whole thing out. Like, well, because sometimes people weigh in and they're uninformed. You're like, yeah, that happens in every field of study. That happens in every social context. That happens in Christian circles for sure. Yeah. So again, just because they're yeah, don't let the people that are uninformed like ruin what could be like a really good thing if it's mm-hmm. if it's what's necessary. Uh, number four, we've talked about this one a lot. Cancel culture refuses nuance. In our eagerness to serve hot takes and quick reactions, we reduce the issues as two-dimensional problems. But humans are more complex than that. There's always another side to every story. Even the loathsome Professor Snape had a redemptive arc. I would get, I'd again say, yeah, there probably are two sides to every story, at least two. But again, in the most extreme cases, like a Harvey Weinstein, that that is pretty open and shut. Right. That's not like a well, okay, let's let's hear Harvey's side. You're like, no, that's right. Which again I know like legally, like he's you know, he's got a right to that. But uh, I would say like, well, these are both equally valid takes on the scenario. I would say no, he's an abuser. Number five, cancel culture functions like a demolition machine. It is programmed to destroy and rip things apart. If all we do is rip things apart, soon we will wake up to a world of rubbles. I think that's a good one. Uh, Let me just read the last two. Number six, cancel culture has no place for social healing and reconciliation, just outrage and shame. When the offender is beaten down and defeated, people don't stop to commiserate. They just walk away and move to the next target. And number seven, cancel culture doesn't look for repentance. It doesn't offer forgiveness either. And even when the offender shows remorse and apologizes, it is never enough. There's a lot packed into those two. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't even know. We don't have a lot of time, but I, I would say... Again, I think I agree to a point, uh, but in the case, again, of the most egregious offenders here, I I think that a Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby can offer remorse and apologize, but they still need to serve time. Like there's still consequences mm-hmm. for their actions and to say like, wow, geez, it just, 
it just left him defeated. And then we didn't offer any, you know, again, as a Christ follower, you desire like healing for that person, but you also desire that like, you know, the, the marginalized and the exploited and the vulnerable uh, are defended. And I think that's, that's an important thing to keep in contrast with this list. You know, I think one good takeaway from that last one is uh, as a culture, and I get why we've gotten to this point, we just tend to not believe people's apologies and remorse. Uh, Not even the most extreme examples I'm not talking about, but uh, people who just go, Hey, that was a dumb joke. I'm sorry. Like I, I'm amazed by how often we are like, we don't take I'm sorry anymore because A, we yeah. think it's spin or just they're just trying to get out from underneath the consequences. And so I do think that's an interesting one. Again, not thinking of the most extreme examples, but some of the more generic ones uh, where it's like, oh, they said, sorry, let's just kind of, you know, work to get past this. It's usually like, nope, too late, too late now. And like the screenshots start going around. So yeah, I, I find this article to be interesting. Like you said, uh, there's there's some things to nitpick about here, but in general, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, we'd love to know what you think. That's over on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, our friend Dr. Jim Dennison wrote an article just yesterday entitled, What Does the Bible Say About Politics? We're going to wade into the deep end a little bit. Coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, what does the Bible say about politics? We're going to talk about parenting. We're going to hear from Dr. Tony Evans, and we're ending finally with some good news. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Brian, you want to guess what other days it might be today? This would be fun. <laughs> How, how in the world would I ever have any idea? It is, uh, let's see, the beginning of the fall. It is National S'mores Day. Goodness, how great would that be? No, you're be never going to guess this first one. This is one of the silliest I've heard of. You ready? Yes. National Produce Misting Day. <laughs> you know, those little machines that I like do missed know. the... That's a missed opportunity. hey that's a good one. Yeah. I, it's always so weird when you're at Jewel and that mister goes off. You're like, and they have that noise. So it's like you're in a jungle. It's the weirdest yeah, thing. The noise is what I don't get. Like, are we trying to coddle them? Like, do the, zucchinis, <laughs> do the zucchinis grow faster if they think they're in the rainforest? Mm-hmm. That part. Maybe I think I think it's to warn people. Like, hey, the That's water's it. It is water's totally to like, hey, if you hear the monkey, get away from the produce. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I shouldn't own a grocery store because I would program it. But I'd be like, hey, when the tiger growls loudly, <laughs> just be freaking people out. It's also uh, name your car day. Did you, did you ever name your car? Are you one of those? I have, I, no, I have never named a car. I would no? like to mock. I would like to mock people who do. But first, oh. I have to know if you've ever named a car. Yeah, absolutely. Every single one all of right. them. All right. Then I won't mock them. There no, please, please, by all means, if uh, if that's what your heart desires is to mock people who find joy in celebrating the gift of transportation, that's right. fine. Go right ahead. I, I have named I should I shouldn't say I've named both of my cars that I have here. One is named the Buick and the other one is named the van. <laughs> that's that's what nice. is what are your car names? Uh, it's usually some version of Ivan. <laughs> Well, there's got to be a story. I'm waiting for you to tell it. It's there's not really a story. It's I, okay. it, I mean, it spans as far back as when I was 16, you know, sort of 40 years ago or whatever. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's man, I'll try and ask my relatives, see if they can remember the origin story. I'm sure it's 
unappealing and not great for radio. So <laughs> but it's a family <laughs> thing, right? Yeah, it is. It's a bit of a family thing. Absolutely. Uh, so you remember when we had Jim Dennison on the show, right? Dr. Jim Dennison. That was probably I a, do. a couple of weeks ago, right? He's written some books. He's got a blog called uh, Dennison Forum. He was a great interview. I thought I, I just found him really sharp, really well-spoken. So I've been since that conversation, I've been visiting his blog on occasion, you know, Brian and I take weeks, uh, we alternate weeks who sort of quote unquote driving for that week. And then we have a shared Google Doc where we're adding links of stuff we're reading or stuff we think might be interesting. And uh, he had a couple from this last week that I thought were, were, were pretty good. And this one here was uh, October 1st and it says, what does the Bible say about politics? I'm going to let you kind of get us into it and uh, then we'll duke it out. Yeah, he says he tells the story of William Wilberforce. Uh, who was vilified for pro-slavery force by pro-slavery forces and blocked repeatedly in parliament, it says, because he kind of said he came to faith. He had a spiritual rebirth in 1786, uh, and it caused him uh, to see the horrors of the slave trade that he had been a part of. Uh, and and Dennison uses that to jump off and go uh, that Wilberforce's story, he says, illustrates that God can use Christians in politics for profound and transformational good. Uh, so it's this call that we as Christians are not supposed to be out of the political sphere. We're not supposed to remove ourselves from politics. He goes on to define politics as the art or science of government uh, and the affairs of the cities. And uh, so basically uh, what Denison's point here is going to be is that we are called to be in politics as Christians, called to be in the world. We're called to make a difference. And so he says, how can we make a difference in this season and act in ways that empower our witness when the election's over? Now he's going to give us a little list of three biblical facts. But the general premise is we as Christians, we're not to be removed. We're not to be bubbled away. We're not to be outside. We are to be in the political sphere, uh, trans bringing transformation, bringing the gospel and bringing Jesus into it. Well, before we go there, too, I want to mention he gives a list here of four. Uh, he says anthropologists generally recognize four kinds of political systems. I thought this was helpful. Number one, the band, a small family group consisting of no more than 30 to 50 individuals Two, the tribe, a group consisting of many families with social institutions such as chiefs or elders. They are more permanent than bands. Uh, three, the chiefdom, more complex than a tribe or a band society. They have a centralized authority structure and institutional leadership. And four, the sovereign state, a state with a permanent population, a defined territory, a government, and the capacity to relate to other sovereign states. So he's going to reference those throughout. But when he gives these three biblical facts, uh, I imagine some people might be cheering for these. Others might completely disagree. And we welcome all of that. The first is that uh, God calls and uses political leaders. Um, he references here Nicodemachian. Is that how I say it? Nico Nicomachian. Nicomachian. Nicomachian ethics. Sure. Aristotle observed politicians have no leisure because they are always aiming at something beyond political life itself, power and glory or happiness. Russian premier Nikita Khrushchev. Khrushchev? That sounds about right. Mm -hmm. Made a similar point. Politicians are the same all over. They promise to build a bridge even where there is no river. It is tempting for Christians to stay, quote, above politics and out of the fray in this day of cancel culture, like we were talking about, and 24-7 media coverage in a nation that feels more divided and divisive than ever. It is understandable for good people to sit on the sidelines. A quick aside, Scott Sauls just tweeted earlier today about how some Did. people were calling him. What, what was the word that he used? Oh, I'll look it up. It was really good. I'll look it, was it like up. Just the middle of the road. Right. Oh, gosh. What did he say? 
Something like, uh, oh, people are accusing him of political ambiguity, right? That's where that was the word. So he goes on. He says, however, as Plato noted, um, one of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is that you end up being governed by your inferiors. The Bible makes clear that despite the stigma often associated with politics, God calls and uses political leaders. Consider three dimensions of this call. Uh, we, we definitely do not have time to take a deep dive into this whole thing. What do you think so far of that premise of his first statement that God calls and uses political leaders? I think it's right. I think there are some people, you know, who are who are gifted and wired and called into the business world, into the church. But there are people called into the public sphere, into the political spectrum, into the political um, halls and and that God can use them to bring about good. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's right. What do you what do you think of the uh, the pitfalls of that position? Uh, the pitfalls will be, uh, you know, um, th- that politics off the top of my head can just be a place of power. And so one of the pitfalls is you get you are in there and it will become easy to kind of not lose your faith, but lose your focus on who has called you and what you've been called to do. So what do you see as a pitfalls? Anything? Uh, yeah, I think that there's probably a few. I think we can often use that as sort of a hands-off approach to excuse any level of abuse or behavior or exploitation. Like, hey, God, God, God called him. What? Are, who are we to? Who are we to call this unrighteous or evil or immoral? Guy, mm-hmm. God called him. So I think that sometimes the temptation can be sort of a uh, a hands-off approach that's sort gotcha. of. A, you know, let lets us off the hook, I guess. Uh, the second category he offers here is that God is calling us to participate in politics. He says, I've been privileged over the years to know several Christians in political leadership, both as their pastor and as their friend. One of the frequent concerns I have heard them express is the common misperception that Christians have done all they need to do if they elect Christians to office. The fact is voting is vital, but it's just the beginning of our biblical responsibility with regard to politics. It is true that, quote, our citizenship is in heaven. That's Philippians 3.20. But it is also true that we are to be good stewards of our time on earth. The Lord told his exiled people in Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. As the salt of the earth and the light of the world, Matthew 5, the flourishing of our world is, in part, our responsibility. If I have, uh, if I have the only light in a dark room, its darkness is my fault. Caring for our culture and engaging in political processes is part of good citizenship for God's people. To that end, consider four practical imperatives for Christians. So he talks about voting, engaging with legislators, uh, serving in public office, and interceding, which I think are all really, really good things. And then I'll let you take this third one. Yeah, it says we must serve our highest authority. He says a survey of biblical teaching with regard to politics would not be complete without a discussion of religious liberty. Uh, and for the sake of time, what he's going to say is be reminded that uh, that, yes, we are underneath leaders here in the state that in, and in our country. But ultimately, uh, we have a Lord. We have a savior. We have a king uh, who uh, who we are under. And so he's wanting to make sure to get that correct of who's at the top and who our ultimate allegiance is to. But under that, as the first as the second one said, be involved, be in the square, vote, do all sorts of stuff, but remember who your ultimate king and who you're ultimately answered to. And we know that anytime that we tackle politics, that's a potentially controversial issue. But I, th- I think this is a well-written article, even if you disagree with some of it. I, I do encourage take the 10 minutes to read the whole thing over the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. We would love to know what you think. Uh, coming up next out of NPR, juggling financial stress and caregiving 
parents are very not okay in the pandemic. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good on this National Body Language Day. Happy Body Language Day to you, Brian. Interesting. Well, I, I think. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? How could that possibly be an insult? I, it's not. I know. I know. It's kind of ironic, right? Way. Because I feel like that is one of the things that we're missing most in yes. this now, like mostly digital reality. Do you find, has that happened to you personally where you, you're misinterpreting people's words more because you can't actually see them? Uh, yeah. And I honestly, people, we've told people this very honestly that you and I aren't in the same place. So sometimes there used to be a rhythm, even when you and I would be in studio seeing each other, kind of like you knew when the other one was going to talk. Uh, so I even think body language between us, it, it, the pandemic has made that hard. So yeah, it's very interesting. Well, then you throw guests in the mix and we haven't done a lot yes. of this, but if there's two guests at the same time, craziness, four of us on a, <laughs> a digital call, that can be, that can be real, real tricky. I think. Not to, I mean, it's not, I don't want to make it sound like this part of the job is super hard, but it can be, yeah, if you're trying to like, you know, navigate and you want to sound organic and to feel natural, that can be tricky when you have a bunch of people on the call. But um, yeah, National Body Language Day. I don't know how you celebrate that, but, you know, best of luck to you. This out of NPR I found interesting and it's something that I've been hearing from a number of parents juggling financial stress and caregiving. Parents are very not okay in the pandemic. It says back in early spring, uh, Kristen Yates worked as a quality assurance analyst at a marketing company and loved her job. I had one of the best jobs of my career. Yates, who's a mother of two children, had moved into a bigger apartment just before the pandemic hit because she wanted to give her kids more space. At the time, she felt like she was at the top of her world. But as the economic effects of the pandemic hit the marketing industry, among others, she lost her job in May. Oh, man. Yates is among the 60% of households with children across the country that have lost jobs or businesses or have had wages reduced during the pandemic, according to a poll released on Wednesday by NPR. Uh, the poll also found that 74% of households with children that made less than $100,000 reported facing serious financial problems. We're seeing skyrocketing rates of job losses and food insecurity and stress, says Anna Johnson, a development psychologist at Georgetown University. I think it would be very hard for these families who've lost income and jobs to get back to where they were. I think there will be just a lot of stress and turmoil in the household for the foreseeable future, and that takes a toll. Brian, as a pastor, I imagine you're still having conversations with families in your church, right? The article is going to go on to say the toll isn't just on parents, but it's also on children. You have a children's ministry. You have people you know, on your staff who are more experts in that field. How, how are you sort of seeing some of the effects of, well, like the title suggests, the stress not only financially, but also caregiving and hybrid learning and all, all of that kind of stuff. What, what, what are you, what are you kind of seeing? Yeah, I think uh, from people I talk to in my church or in my sphere, uh, my circle of friends, people are just tired. Uh, people are just tired. Like when we first started everything in the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we all had this adrenaline rush, right? I'm going to teach my kids and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And now six months in, I just think people are just tired and stressed all at the same time. Just kind of this big ball of weariness and stress and anxiety because of finances. But also, like you said, because are my kids going to be OK? Am my job going to be OK? Or what the, what's the world even going to look like? So my uh, my interaction with people is I would call it kind of a mixture of just weariness, just tiredness mixed with a high level of stress right now. And uh, it's not getting any better uh, especially as this goes on. I'm sure you're seeing a lot of the same stuff in, in your people as well. 
Yeah. And I, again, to give, you know, props to our church, our community cares initiative has been one of the things I've been most proud of for our church because, you know, we identified like the 12 biggest needs in our community and then developed and mobilized teams to kind of go after those 12 needs. So you'd be amazed at how much like we've, we've been getting requests even from people in various different States who found our website and just the, the amount of generosity from people who maybe haven't felt the financial hit the way that other people have to help mobilize these, these teams, which could be anything from, you know, food insecurity to like sewing and delivering masks and helping, you know, people with budgets, you know, we've been working with a number of organizations, you know, cap, for example, Christians against poverty, we've been using uh, their resources as a church. And that's been remarkable and just helping people, who they're like, okay, I have more downtime than usual. Now would be a great time to educate myself. How can I be better at budgeting and planning for the future? And so there's a lot of good that's happening there, but kind of like what the article is saying, there's still a lot of anxiety. And I think I could be wrong. I think a lot of the anxiety is around the unknown components. Like if it was just dollars and cents, it's like, okay, I know what I need to figure out to, to kind of write this ship or at least get us to a place where we're healthy. Um, that's a stress in and of itself. I think a lot of parents are feeling like, I, I don't actually know how this is affecting my kid. And I probably won't know for quite some time. And that's giving me a lot of stress, you know? Oh, absolutely. It's the unknown. Because I think, uh, I remember when this all started back in the middle of March, when we kind of shut everything down, we all just thought, all right, remember we were having talks like, do you think we'll be back in church by Easter? <laughs> Which was like the right. middle of April. Right. They're just, I think a lot of us lived under the impression there's going to come a day we just turn the light switch all the way back on. Back in school is normal. Church is normal. Everything's just quote unquote normal. And now you just, it's like it's been for so long that you're like, I don't even know what normal is going to be. And so therefore, what's that mean for my kids? What's that mean for my church? What's it mean for my job? And uh, that unknown, as you said, uh, is is where that stressor is. Because again, like you said, my kids are about to go back to school in the middle of October, but it's in this hybrid way where they're there, they're not there, they're home. And right. you're just like, I hope this works. <laughs> I hope this is a good thing. It's They seem to be doing okay, right? And uh, there's a lot of that. Like, it's even hard to know how to analyze anything within your family, within your church, within your school, yeah. whatever your job. It's hard to even know, how do I analyze if things are going, quote unquote, well right now? Because this is so, to use a word we've used a million times, unprecedented. And I don't know how to do it. And for a parent, that just worries you when you've got financial strain and then you've got this worry about your kids. Uh, I, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot for sure. Yeah. And the other component here that we don't have time to get to, the NPR poll found that the financial impact on families with children was disproportionately high for Hispanic and black households. 86% of Hispanic and 66% of black households with kids reported serious financial problems compared to 51% of white households. That is a whole other important conversation that uh, maybe maybe we need to dedicate some time for that. Mm-hmm. But the end of the article does actually unpack a little bit about some of the uh, projections for long-term impacts, you know, and from isolation to socialization and all of that. And in general, I found it equal parts like terrifying and encouraging. You know, there's a, a lot of me that thinks, okay, I'm I'm just incredibly grateful for a circle of friends, a family, a church community, and we're all kind of strategizing and working through this together. So there's a there is a sense of togetherness, but there there is another part that like you know none of us really know yeah uh, how this plays out ten, fifteen, twenty years from now. And I think it's probably to some degree natural for parents to really wonder about that. But 
Also, some people won't be aware of like what that low grade stress anxiety is sort of doing to their own sanity and their own mental health. Cause you know, sometimes you just kind of hold on to that. And if you're like me, I can just sort of be like, all right, we're taking that next hill. And sometimes I can struggle to like pay close attention to my own level of like stress or worry or anxiety. So it, it definitely, there's multiple like layers to this. And uh, we hope and pray that, you know, you guys are all figuring that out as best you mm-hmm. can. And as always, if there's anything that we can do to help or resources we can point you to, uh, please let us know. Send us a message over at the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, coming up next, Tony Evans said some stuff that I found real intriguing. Mainly, he said, you can't cherish worldly success and know Jesus. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good on this National Manufacturing Day, one of Brian's favorite holidays. Mm-hmm. I have the tree up. You have the tree up. What kind of <laughs> ornaments do you hang on the tree for National Manufacturing Day? <laughs> I, uh, it depends what we're manufacturing that year. Sometimes, it, you know, it's just... You know, just some hardware. Just hang some hardware from the tree. Just, just wrenches. Just wrenches yeah. hanging from the tree. That's got to be the droopiest tree. And it's also it National Fried Scallops Day. Are you a scallops guy, Brian? Uh, I'm going to let you guess on that one. Oh, no. Is the answer no? The answer is definitively no. Yes. Why? I'm, just I'm just, just I'm tell me not why. A, you're gonna, I know this is going to build a narrative about me, but I'm just not a seafood guy. I am not. All right, we need to have an intervention later off air or maybe on air. That'd be fun. I'm going to surprise you with one of these segments sometime in the future. You're just going to hop on and it's going to be like a whole team of your closest friends and family. Like, Brian, we, we got to talk about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and, we're just, we're over an avocado. Yes, right yeah, here. And burnt cookies and yeah, all that. <laughs> a quick funny story. Somebody at the very beginning of our church, they owned a uh, a seafood restaurant and they had my family over for dinner and they called us like an, a day before and they were asking me, what do you guys like to eat? What are your kids like? And I was like, oh, we'll eat anything except we're just not a sea. And I kind of went off about seafood. Like, we just don't like seafood, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, okay, great. We'll have this. We got there. They had the beautiful spread set out. We sit down. I'm like, so what do you guys do? And they're like, we own a seafood restaurant. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. You should be writing these down. You've used that in a sermon before, haven't you? Uh, probably, Yeah. I mean, yeah, the odds, I think the I odds have, are pretty high. What was the takeaway? What was your uh, what was your lead in? What was the angle? Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> that was the name of your sermon, wasn't it? Hey, exactly. I have Four Corners Community Church. Keep your mouth keep shut. Keep your mouth shut. Yes, it was I, a very funny moment, and they were so gracious. But Carrie, I'm like, my wife just put her head down, and I was like, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, my my wife has had some of those put her head down moments as well. I've been known. I could have probably. Stood to learn your sermon earlier. Keep your mouth shut would have helped me a lot. Uh, all right. So Tony Evans, we've referenced Tony Evans a number of times on the show. That's right. He, uh, this article out of Relevant says, Tony Evans, you can't cherish worldly success and know Jesus. Let me just share with you how it begins. It's one of the hungriest people in scripture was the Apostle Paul from a prison cell where he no doubt suffered deprivation and pain. He penned some of the most profound insights in all recorded history. His letter was written to the church at Philippi, but the principles within the book apply to us today just as much as they did back then. So then he references chapter three of this letter. Paul wrote this, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. 
You can tell a lot about a person when they are at their lowest point, whether it's a health crisis, financial disaster, or relational issues. What matters most usually rises to the surface when life boils over. Here was Paul struggling in a scenario that gave him no uh, no creature comforts, no relational intimacy, no financial stability, and no personal security. Yet, in the midst of his most dire situation, he wrote about things like value and gain, not tied to an IRA or platform, but tied to knowing Jesus Christ. Paul was hungry for more than just food. In fact, he was so hungry to know Christ that he said nothing else mattered to him anymore except for that. Although his circumstances were negative, they did not control his well-being. Paul had an inner contentment in knowing that the greatest pursuit in life, that of knowing God through his son, Jesus Christ, was his highest aim. I'll stop there. We've actually referenced Philippians a number of times on the show as well. What do you think of this premise? Do you agree so far with the kind of assessment and treatment of the cultural setting of Philippians? I do. And it's funny, like I just, I told you in the last couple of weeks, we're actually preaching through Philippians right now. Oh, right. Uh, and uh, yeah, Paul, I mean, he's chained to a, to a Roman prison facing possible execution and yet talks about joy over and over again. And so, yeah, him talking about Paul struggling here in a scenario, he says, I gave him no creature comforts or anything like that. Uh, and Paul, like you read the epistles and he just longed to know Jesus. And yeah, it's challenging. So I think uh, Tony Evans, as he's off to do, has set this up very well. Is there anything that you would add so far now that you're I forgot that you were preaching through it? Anything that he missed? No, I don't think so. I think he's he's got this off to to a good spot. So, no, I uh, it's funny. We have talked to before how Tony Evans is one of those that that is like a preacher of preachers. So. To add to Tony Evans, you're like, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't. I don't think it's holy writ, Brian. I think that I understand. Uh, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're certainly allowed to weigh in. Uh, he goes on and tells a story about a soldier, um, which I thought was interesting. He he talks a bit more about um, the word rubbish and the word gain and how that actually applies. And I've I've actually I've preached through Philippians as well. And every time okay. I read it, um, I find it more and more convicting. Let, let me let me share the story here. It says the story is told of a soldier sitting outside the white house one day crying uncontrollably. A little boy saw him weeping and asked, sir, what's wrong? The soldier replied, I was hoping I could see president Lincoln. We've got this devastating situation and only the president can intervene and save the lives of my men, but they won't let me in. The little boy took the soldier's hand and said, come with me. They then proceeded to walk past the sentry at the gate and straight into the White House, past the guards. They then walked right into the president's office, and the little boy said, Dad, this soldier <laughs> needs to talk with you. Sometimes it may feel like you can't get to God. You can't see him. You can't feel him. You can't touch him. It seems as if uh, he is this cosmic being far off in Never Never Land, but it is through the life of Jesus Christ who came to earth as a human and who understands your weaknesses and struggles that you have full access to the Father. Jesus offers his hand and says, come with me, you who are weary and burned. I know exactly where to lead you. I, I like mm. that premise, you know, because like you mentioned, Paul is, he's in a weary place. He's probably, I imagine, I mean, some commentators, I remember preaching through this passage have um, sort of analyzed even his language and at times noted that it feels borderline manic. Like he was mm. probably, you know, he even mentions like, I don't I'm not really sure if I want to live or die. Like yep, he's, yep we often read these words as if he's like preaching them from a pulpit and he's, he's, he's most certainly not like he's facing circumstances that are leaving him feeling anxious or worried or weary. And I imagine that's how a lot of people feel right now, you know? And I think that that's why letters like Philippians are so encouraging. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's in the book of Philippians where, like you just said, he says, it's for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He's like, that's going right. to be better for me if I'm done. Right. Uh, so, yeah, he's weary. He is. That's a great point you make, because oftentimes you can read things like Philippians and other things and just be like, Paul rose above it all. Right. He was just in there going, I'm so happy to be chained to this wall because right. no, he was struggling. And uh, and and what Tony Evans does here with the word, you know, rubbish that that could be uh, that could be even translated manure right like it's just worth nothing with the, to know jesus and and he does this so well this is just really hard to live out right and like uh that's always the hard part in preaching philippians or in other things like how do you actually help your people say yeah i'm gonna look at my earthly things as less than as rubbish as everything at and and just prioritize knowing jesus though so I, I always struggle with how do we get to that point so if you have that answer in the last minute, I would love to hear it. But uh, <laughs> therein lies the problem because Paul lays it out perfectly here. Like this is this is the uh, this is the order here, right? It's it's knowing Jesus is pinnacle, and and the rest kind of falls below it. And but it's hard to live out on a day to day basis for sure. Yeah, and I, I don't even know that Paul would necessarily say that it's primarily about trying harder to live it out. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's often where we twist some of what Paul writes here, because like you mentioned the word, you know, rubbish. Uh, there's actually a, a German Bible that translated that word uh, Scheiße, which I think is interesting because that's like that's like right on the nose. And what Paul is saying is, and I had my pedigree, I had this resume, I had all these things that I found all my significance in, and then I actually like encountered the risen Christ. And by contrast, it made this whole resume that I was bragging about all the yes. time worthless. And it wasn't about, oh, I had to work really hard to dismantle the hold of those things in my life. It's like, no, when I actually looked face to face to Jesus in the one that loved me beyond measure, beyond compare, beyond comprehension, it just made these, other, you know, that old song, like all else will just sort of fall away. That's right. I think, I think we often miss it when we're like, oh, I want to get really, I want to get better at praying or I want to get better <laughs> at yeah. quiet time. Those are good things to shoot after. I think the goal though is intimacy, intimacy with Jesus. And then as a result, those things are like the byproduct of that. Either way, this was an excerpt from a, a book from me. Tony Robbins is what I was going to say. Tony Evans is what I need to say. <laughs> Different people. Not from Tony <laughs> Robbins. Man, for them to go on tour together, though, I'd watch that. That'd be fun. That'd be good. Yes. Either way, that's over on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. And uh, it's been a long week, friends. So we thought let's end the day and the week with some good news. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some... Hi, friends. It's a sad moment. We're welcoming you back to the common good, but for the last time, both today and this week. That's a little sad, isn't it? Uh, no, I think they could use the break from us, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? I'm imagining a reality where someone's like forcing themselves to listen, even though they don't want to. Like they, I was like, oh, please give me, give me a break. I'm required by law to listen every single day. Oh, get me to the weekend, please. <laughs> please don't tell me about National Produce Misting Day one more time. I can't, I can't handle it. It is also National Custodial Workers Recognition Day. So okay. our hats off to you, custodial workers. Again, they mm-hmm. put that in the category of weird and I don't know why. Like that just seems that seems odd to me. But um, it's also International Day of Nonviolence. How did I not know that? We should have talked more about that. Okay. All right. Either way, this is a segment uh, we've not done. I mean, I guess we probably average once or twice a week. There's a whole lot more. We could do it more often if we wanted. If you go to goodnewsnetwork.org, they have just a smorgasbord of wonderful stories. But we like to end the week at times just with some good news. We know. 
there's a lot of chaos in the world. There's a lot of a lot of fear, a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety. We want to just highlight some some feel good stories. We don't have any you know big existential takeaways. They're just good stories to make you feel good. And Brian Fromm's going to kick us off. Yep, here we go. Teen McDonald's employee pays for family's meal when mom forgets her wallet. Then she raises $32,000 for him. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> when a stressed out mom rolled up to a McDonald's drive through to purchase a meal for her children, she realized with dismay on making her order that she'd left her purse at home. But the teenage server at the window didn't send her away. Instead, Wyatt Jones said he'd happily pay for the meal out of his own pocket. Brittany Reed was more than grateful. Uh, it had already been a long day of soccer practice for her four and seven year old. Later that night, purse in tow, Brittany drove back to McDonald's to give Wyatt his money back. But the Ohio local insisted the meal was on him. Brittany wrote about this in a Facebook post about how kind and compassionate uh, on hearing that he was saving up to buy a car. Brittany began a GoFundMe page. And as of October 1st, she had raised $32,000 for him. <laughs> That's really cool because the kid didn't do it for the money. But man, what a cool uh what a nice uh, payback, and now it's going to help him in some really nice ways. Yeah, no kidding. All right, coming up next here, the fashion industry has a waste problem. This nonprofit with 2,000 volunteers is helping solve it. Fabric cutting and textile leftovers are a difficult class of waste to recycle, but in a fashion industry, first, a door-to-door New York uh, City recycling service meant exclusively for textile waste is helping the uglier side of fashion get a green makeover. I'll be the first to admit, this had never crossed my mind. It Not makes, at all. It makes a ton of sense. Never crossed my mind. So it's called Fab Scrap. Is that right? That's right. Fab Scrap runs an internet store in a physical location that's part secondhand shop, part recycling facility based around fashion industry waste collected from top brands like J. Crew, Nautica, and Macy's. Jessica Schreiber, the founder of Fab Scrap, discovered while working at New York City's Bureau of Recycling and Sustainability that many of the city's iconic fashion industry names were ringing her office asking what to do with textile waste. Being that NYC law requires the recycling of any material if it amounts to more than 10% commercial waste, she realized the problem represented an unfulfilled niche that would make a great business model. She pitched her idea to Project One Way, fashion startup, and was awarded seed money for her vision of a company that would pick up textile waste from fashion houses and find ways to reuse or recycle it. I'll just read one more paragraph. Accumulating 20 clients in her first year, Schreiber now manages the waste of 434 different brands, and her work has seen 600,000 pounds of textiles and fabrics spared from entering New York City's landfill network, with each pound saved representing about 2.06 pounds of CO2. Again, file this away under things I would never in a million years think of. That's absolutely true. Next one. Kroger gave a job to a homeless woman who slept in their parking lot. Uh, Let's go. Not long ago, Lashenda Williams was living in her car and wondering where her next meal was coming from. Raised in the foster care system, Williams never had a stable home in her life. She said, I spent my life moving from foster care to foster care, dealing with child abuse and things like that. In the end, nobody wanted me. And I stayed in the system until my senior year of high school. In addition to the abuse she suffered in foster care, Williams was hampered by a learning disability that made finding jobs really difficult. But even so, she never stopped trying. Whether it was luck or fate that led her to the parking lot of an East Nashville Kroger store, Williams' life was about to change for the better. By day, she became a store regular, striking up conversations and making friends, even when she couldn't afford to buy food. At night, she moved her car to a new new location, hoping that the staff wouldn't realize she was living in the parking lot. 
When the associate manager heard Williams mention her goal of working at the store one day, she told her about the upcoming job fair, uh, impressed by her can-do, upbeat people skills. The assistant manager made sure she made the cut from candidate to new hire, helping Williams with her application and even tweaking her resume. It took her only a month to get her first promotion from part-time cashier to full-time checkout assistant. Soon after, she was able to afford a new place to live. As it turned out, it was the very first apartment she'd ever had uh, with her name on the lease. And the assistant manager goes on to say, if I could have uh, many more people like her, I would love to have that. What a cool, what a, what a nice story, because now she's in her own place and has her own apartment. That's amazing. Uh, the last two, one involves a rat and one involves a dog. I'm going to go ahead and fall on the sword, Brian. I'll take the rat and Thank I'll you. let you close us with the lovely story about the dog. Although the one about a rat is also lovely. Headline simply reads, this rat sniffs for landmines in Cambodia and has just won a gold medal for his life-saving work. <laughs> the photo is of him wearing his gold medal. A landmine detection rat whose work in Cambodia has transformed the lives of the country's citizens has been awarded the gold medal from a UK charity for his life-saving bravery and devotion to duty. Magawa is an African giant pouched rat trained to detect landmines by the international nonprofit APOPO. Uh, he has discovered 39 landmines and 28 items of unexploded uh, ordnance to date, making him the charity's most successful hero rat. During his career, <laughs> he has helped clear over 141,000 square meters of land, the equivalent of 20 football pitches, making that land safer for local people again. Magawa was formally presented with his miniature gold medal from veterinarian charity, the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals, via a live link between Cambodia and Great Britain last week. He is the first rat in the charity's 77-year history of honoring animals to receive a PDSA medal, joining a lineup of brave dogs, horses, pigeons, and one cat. I don't know why <laughs> I included this one, but man, I just thought that story was wild. Yeah, and this one, this is going to put a tear in your eye. Let's end the week this way. Abandoned senior dogs are living out their golden years with love at this new retirement sanctuary. All dogs may go to heaven, but when older pooches wind up in shelters, chances of them living out their final years in contentment are slim. At Marty's Place in Upper Freehold, New Jersey, however, the resident family of senior sanctuary dogs is getting a whole new leash on life. hey Marty's Marty's places Marty's place founder Doreen uh, Jabakak understood that older dogs have significantly less chance of getting adopted. So she made it her mission to look out for the underdogs. The focus is a rehomed of is on rehomed canines ages seven and up. Amenities at the upscale doggy retirement village include generous living quarters, medical and dental care, regular exercise, activities geared towards their capabilities and their limitations. I want to go here when I retire (laughs) with plenty of sofas for just hanging out and even an in-ground pool for those inclined to take a dip. Every dog here is insured of having his or her day. While some dogs that pass through Marty's place eventually find adoptive pet parents, none of them ever have to worry about being abandoned. Jab Cook said, When we commit to a dog that comes to Marty's place, they do have a forever home. That forever home can be here at the sanctuary. And when we can try to place a dog or when we can try to place a dog in an adoptive place. Oh, man, that one. (laughs) Some people are just the hands and feet of God. And that is one of them right there. (laughs) I'm guessing by the noise you just let out, you're you're a fan of that story. I am. That is awesome. That's great. (laughs) Well, either way, we know that's not like. A hard-hitting way to end the day or the week, but uh, I would say never underestimate the value 
of just taking in some good news now and again. There's plenty of negative in the world, and you don't have to go searching all that far for it. But I like to find every once in a while some things to kind of lift our spirits, and I hope that encouraged you all as much as it encouraged us. It's been a great week, and we hope you join us again next week. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life.